From the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's program, leave that stroma alone. Full thickness keratoplasty is a full thickness wound, so even years later, this wound healing is never complete, and most of these patients, if they suffer any minimal blunt trauma, they can often present with a wound gape, and sometimes this can lead to loss of the graft. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Dr. Fogla declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. Do you enjoy the programs you hear in this podcast? Why not contribute to the conversation by calling our listener response lines? Share your expertise about an issue we've discussed by calling. In the United States, dial area code 646-808-0231. That's a local New York number. In the United Kingdom, dial 020-7558-8275. That's a local London number. You can also ask questions of any guest who has appeared on the podcast. Then your question will be relayed to the guest, and your question and the guest's answer will appear on the following podcast. Go ahead. Try it out. It's cool. Aside from endothelial rejection, what are the chief complications associated with penetrating keratoplasty? High or irregular astigmatism and wound complications would top the list. These complications arise from stromal transplantation. But many patients who undergo penetrating keratoplasty, patients with pseudophagic bullous keratopathy or Fuchs dystrophy, don't need new stromas. How much better it would be if we could transplant only the endothelium? Rajesh Fogla, who spoke to us a couple months ago about transplanting just the stroma and epithelium and leaving the endothelium intact, is back today to talk about doing just the opposite, transplanting the endothelium in a procedure called deep lamellar endothelial keratoplasty, or DLEK. Rajesh, what are the downsides of full thickness penetrating keratoplasty for patients with endothelial dysfunction? When we do a full thickness keratoplasty, we do get very good visual results. But what we are not able to predict is the astigmatism, and what we are not able to control is the final refractive outcome because a lot of patients end up with higher degrees of hyperopia or sometimes with higher degrees of myopia. And the other thing is a full thickness keratoplasty is a full thickness wound. So even years later, this wound healing is never complete. And most of these patients, if they suffer any minimal blunt trauma, they can often present with a wound gape. And sometimes this can lead to loss of the graft. And sometimes even they can develop other complications involving the posterior segment of the eye. Full thickness keratoplasty for endothelial replacement has a lot of sutures to keep the graft in place. These sutures can get vascularized, they can become loose. Sometimes they can be a focus of infection, which can again be detrimental for the graft because each of them can lead to either graft rejection or they can lead to infection, which can also damage the graft. How was posterior lamellar keratoplasty done before this technique? People have been trying, you know, always to figure out a way whereby they can selectively just replace the disease layer. This is the endothelium that's not functional. Now, there were several techniques attempted for this kind of, you know, to achieve this purpose. One of them was the microkeratome-assisted 
endothelial keratoplasty where just like you perform a corneal flap in a LASIK, a flap is lifted, after which the posterior corneal layers are trefined and the posterior layer is removed. The same way you fashion your donor tissue where you lift up a corneal flap and then cut out uh, the donor tissue from the posterior layer. Now this tissue is brought into the host, sutured into place, and then the flap is put back. Now this surgical technique still involves a lot of full thickness incision. It involves placement of a lot of sutures. So the results were also not very encouraging. So then came in the scleral pocket technique where you make a peripheral incision, do a lamellar dissection, into the cornea, cut out a central disc, and then prepare a similar disc from the donor tissue and try and bring it into place. And this technique does not require the need for any kind of sutures. Now, Dr. Mellis in Netherlands, again, was a kind of, he did the pioneering work in this, and he called it posterior lamellar keratoplasty. And the initial technique was a 9 millimeter scleral incision superiorly, and then you do a lamellar dissection, use a trefine to cut out the posterior layer, then do a lamellar dissection in the donor tissue after mounting the donor corneal rim onto an artificial anterior chamber, and then you punch out the posterior disc from the endothelial side, and then bring this disc, place it on a spatula, and take it into the eye and put it into position. But still, this required a lot of dissection, and the superior 9 millimeter incision required placement of a lot of sutures. Then came in the technique where, because people were getting more and more familiar with the phacoemulsification surgery, so you make a smaller incision, which is about 5 millimeter in size, do this lamellar dissection at about 80% depth into the cornea, and then cut out a central 8 millimeter disc using you know special curved scissors, which from the Terry's technique, they call it the Cindy scissors. This scissor allows you to cut out the disc of 8 millimeter. After you have done that, then you take your donor tissue, which is only the posterior 20% with the endothelium, put a layer of viscoelastic on the endothelium, and then fold the donor tissue endothelium to endothelium. Then holding it with the utrata forceps, you can introduce into the anterior chamber. Uh, this You can inject saline to form the anterior chamber, which kind of unfolds the disc, and then you use air to stabilize the disc into position then using a reverse Sinsky hook, you can go and position the disc exactly where you want it to be, and then close the main incision with another two or three sutures. So the best part of this technique is the surface is intact. You have not touched the corneal surface. 80% of the cornea is still okay, so tectonically it's very strong. The corneal surface contour is very well maintained. In these patients, if you were to do a topographic pre-op and post-op, you will find that there's not much change, or if there's unilateral corneal edema, but the fellow eye is normal. If you were to do a corneal topography in the fellow normal eye, you'll be surprised to find that postoperatively in the operated eye, the keratometry values are very close to the unoperated fellow eye, which means that once the endothelial function is restored, the corneal curvature goes back to normal. So if you were doing a triple procedure in this patient, like you were doing a phacoemulsification with intraocular lens implantation besides the endothelial transplantation, you could quite accurately calculate your intraocular lens power to avoid any kind of refractive surprise postoperatively, which earlier you could not do when you used to do a triple procedure with the full thickness keratoplasty because we had to assume in the standard K reading or, you know, sometimes that was very difficult and refractive surprises were quite common. Can I get you to talk in a little more detail about the preparation of the donor tissue? 
Now, what I use is a stores artificial anterior chamber. Now, the donor tissue is taken from the medium, and then we coat the endothelium with a layer of cohesive viscoelastic, after which the donor tissue is placed onto the artificial anterior chamber and locked into place. I use a diamond knife at about 400, set at a depth of 400 microns and make a peripheral incision just in front of the surgical limbus for about six to seven millimeter. Then using a standard crescent knife, you initiate the plane of dissection at about 80% depth, after which I use lamellar dissector. These are again available from stores called the Divers Straight Lamellar Dissector for the initial half of the cornea up to the central part. And then we have the diverse curved lamellar dissector because the cornea is not a flat surface. So this dissector kind of follows the curve of the cornea so that you can maintain the same plane of depth of dissection. So you here you, uh, the intention of doing the lamellar dissection goes all the way up to the limbus. Once you have achieved this, then we remove the donor tissue from the artificial anterior chamber and place it on an endothelial trifine, placing the endothelial side up. This is again available from Catena. This is the Hesburgh-Baron endothelial trifine. Then an eight millimeter donor tissue is punched out, after which the posterior lamellar tissue is folded endothelium to endothelium, and then held with a pair of utrata forceps and introduced into the eye and positioned uh, into the central eight millimeter opening that you have created then saline is injected into the anterior chamber to kind of deepen the anterior chamber, which helps the disc to unfold. And then we inject air into the anterior chamber, which kind of stabilizes the disc into position. And the disc is further manipulated into place into its ideal position. The wound is secured with two or three interrupted sutures, after which the air bubble can be removed from the eye. But I prefer to leave a mid-sized air bubble into the anterior chamber and usually advise my patients to stay supine in the post-operative period for the first 24 hours. Similar to the big bubble technique, the donor tissue winds up sticking on because of swelling pressure, right? Correct, correct. But here, the posterior layer has a little bit of stroma onto it. It's just not the decimate. And yeah, it, it kind of sticks onto its own. And even in the recent technique that I do, which is not mentioned in the paper, this is called decimate stripping endothelial keratoplasty where we don't do any kind of lamellar dissection in the host. What we do is we just make two paracentesis, then use a reverse sense key to go and kind of score the decimates membrane over the central eight millimeter. Then we kind of scratch and peel off the decimates in the central eight millimeter. A peripheral scleral incision is made and you prepare a scleral tunnel and gain access into the anterior chamber. Then your donor disc that you've prepared is just brought in and floated against, you know, and put into position. Here, actually, we are not cutting out a posterior disc like what we did in the earlier surgery. So, again, it's the functional endothelium that kind of creates the pressure in the interface and keeps the disc into position. Now, these patients wind up with a corneal stroma that's 100% of their own native corneal stroma plus 20% of the donor's stroma, right? With the endothelial, deep lamellar endothelial keratoplasty, where we are actually excising out a posterior disc, there the patient's corneal thickness varies somewhere between 470 microns to about 650 microns. But where, where you do the decimate stripping endothelial keratoplasty, where you're not removing any stromal tissue at all, you're just removing the decimates and you're putting in another tissue, yes, there the stromal thickness can vary between 700 to 850 microns. 
And even in the U.S., Francis Price has been doing what they call the decimate stripping automated endothelial keratoplasty or the DSAEK. They are also, here the main problem is that we are increasing the stromal thickness so much, we are making it about 800 to 1,000 microns. My greatest concern with this technique is, is the endothelium able to bear the amount of stress that is required to keep this stromal thickness clear. So that is again still, I have to see, I'm very new to the DSEA technique because I've done only about three cases till now. All the three cases have been doing well, but what we need to look at is the long-term outcome of these kind of patients. The long, the one of the papers where Dr. Mellis has presented his three years results of the posterior lamellar keratoplasty, the rate of endothelial cell loss in that series has been comparable to what you see with standard full thickness keratoplasty. About six patients have completed one year follow-up and their endothelial cell loss is quite similar to what we see with the full thickness keratoplasty. In fact, in my series that we published, I think the endothelial cell loss was close to about 15 to 16% at six months. But most of it is primarily the intra-op loss that happens right during the surgery. Now, some of these patients, like those with long-standing fuchs or long-standing pseudophagic bullous keratopathy, uh, are are going to have some scarring at Bowman's layer. Uh, I assume that these patients are, are are not candidates for this sort of procedure. No. I have few patients who have had corneal edema for about three years, and the cornea looked pretty hazy in the beginning, and when I did the endothelial transplantation in these patients, they would clearly explain that the visual recovery outcome was not very satisfactory. They always had the option of going back to a full thickness corneal graft. But to my surprise, most of these patients, the cornea clears up really very well because if, if they have just have had only corneal edema without any other corneal infection or anything leading to corneal scarring, the corneal haze clears up very well. But one needs to be very sure that the haze is just because of prolonged edema and not because of any other etiology like a secondary corneal infection from bullous keratopathy. Can I have you describe the design of the study that you presented in in this paper? Well, it was again a non-comparative case series. This was uh, after, in about 2004, I was with Dr. Mark Terry in Portland, Oregon, and I did about one week training with him. And after coming back, we started prospective study. This was again approved by the Institutional Review Board, and informed consent was obtained from all patients and clearly explaining to them the kind of recent nature of this surgery and the kind of limited follow-up that we had. But again, the benefits of this kind of nature of surgery was quite good because there were no sutures, the cornea was tectonically more strong, and most of these patients, the unaided vision was quite good. So looking at these benefits, I did not have any patient refuse the surgery who were offered this and most of them who have had the surgery are quite happy and would prefer to have it in the fellow eye if the fellow eye was similarly affected, especially in patients with Fuchs endothelial dystrophy. In fact, one of my patients uh, whom I had operated about five years back, one eye with a full thickness keratoplasty and cataract surgery and eye wall implantation, when he underwent his other eye with the FACO and foldable implantation with uh, endothelial keratoplasty, he was so happy with the fellow eye that he said, I wish I had waited for my first eye. I would have preferred to have this and not the full thickness keratoplasty. Because the field of vision, also the field is much larger. And if you do a corneal topography, you will see that the corneal topography images only the central, you know, seven 
6.5 or 7 millimeter of the corneal graft when you do a full thickness keratoplasty. But when you do endothelial transplantation, you will see that the corneal topography is very uniform and it kind of images the entire cornea. So definitely the quality of vision in these patients is quite good. However, we need to look at, because when we are assessing the vision, we are assessing with full, thick, uh, full uh, contrast Snellen's chart, but one of the papers that was presented in last year's ACR is looked at the contrast sensitivity function following this kind of endothelial keratoplasty, and the interface does affect the contrast sensitivity. So we, we, we still need to look at what we are dealing with in the long run before we really say that uh, the endothelial transplantation is the state of art surgery and we don't need to perform any more full thickness grafts. Do you know what the rejection rate is for these patients? Well, I think the rejection rate would be pretty similar because of the patients that I've done, I've not had any patients having rejection. And all the other papers that have been published, whether from Mark Terry, they have described uh, maybe in a series of about 25, 30 patients, maybe one patient having single episode of rejection, but none of them have had any donor failure because of rejection. Although few patients have had primary donor failure because of dislocation, which has to be repeatedly manipulated to kind of put it back into position. And presumably because of that, because of increased damage to the endothelial cells during repeated manipulation would have led to the donor failure. Uh, of my in, in my series of about 45 patients that I have done with the deep lamellar endothelial keratoplasty technique, I have not even had a single dislocation as of now, but the results are very encouraging, yeah. If a patient has a graft failure, either as a result of a primary graft failure or as a result of a rejection, can the procedure be repeated? It is very simple. You just need to go make a paracentesis, go into the anterior chamber, and with a reverse Sinsky hook, you can just peel off the first graft because the interface never really heals. So you can just, like, you can lift up an anterior flap. The posterior disc can also be just pulled down into the anterior chamber. You can prepare a new disc, take it into the anterior chamber, float it, and put it back into position. If a patient rejects one of these endothelial grafts, does it put the patient at a greater risk for a subsequent rejection of a, of a full thickness penetrating keratoplasty if that's performed? Yeah, I think so that the basic pathophysiology behind rejection would remain the same because the endothelium is the part that is exposed to the aqueous humor. So the body will continue to recognize it. I think the risk of rejection would be the same as with a full thickness keratoplasty or with the second graft. So the, the risk of rejection is not going to be any less but the only thing is suture-related uh, complications we lead to rejection would not be there with the endothelial transplantation. How hard was this technique to learn to do? Well, I think the best way to learn is to practice in the wet lab, either on animal eyes or on donor eye bank eyes. Before I started doing the surgery, I practiced a few of the lamellar dissection steps, and I was already doing the anterior lamellar surgery. So a lamellar dissection of the cornea was not too difficult for me, but for somebody who really wants to start this surgery, the procedure now is kind of fairly simple, especially with the DSAEK, where in the host, you just need to make peripheral paracentesis, go with the reverse and skip peel of the decimates, then make a 5.5 millimeter tunnel and gain access into the anterior chamber. The donor tissue can be mounted onto an artificial anterior chamber, like the one supplied by Moria, and then you can use a automated lamellar keratome to kind of shave off the anterior 300 microns of the donor tissue. And the residual tissue can then be put onto an endothelial block and the posterior layer can just be punched out. The disc can be folded 
and introduced into the anterior chamber and floated into place. So I think with the introduction of this automated lamellar technique, even in the US, there have been quite a number of surgeons who have now started doing it. And from what I gather recently, there are a lot of eye banks who are giving you pre-processed lamellar tissues for this kind of surgery. And now people are talking about using femtosecond laser to achieve the lamellar dissection, which should be even more precise but only time will tell how, how things proceed and what we deal with it in the future. Rajesh, do you perform this sort of surgery um, exclusively for patients with endothelial dysfunction as a result of Fuchs or um, pseudothecic bull's keratopathy? I have basically done this kind of the endothelial surgery for patients with Fuchs endothelial dystrophy. I have done with pseudothecic bullous keratopathy and aphecic bullous keratopathy. Very recently, I operated on a patient with anterior chamber cleavage syndrome who has had four anticlocomer surgeries and the cornea had decompensated following that. So therein, we did the endothelial transplantation combined with the phacoemulsification and intraocular lens implantation. And there's another paper of mine that's being submitted to the journal that's on basically, that's one of my posters in the ASCRS that's on DLEK surgery in a patient with ICE syndrome because in ICE syndrome, as we know, it's the endothelium that's abnormal, which undergoes fibrous metaplasia, and then it kind of proliferates and covers the trabecular meshwork and comes onto the iris, giving rise to all the abnormalities. So this patient had decreased vision and early cataracts, so we did a fake emulsification with foldable intraocular lens implantation. And we did, along with that, we did an endothelial transplantation. Now, this patient has completed 14 months follow-up. Uh, cell counts are very good. Her pressures are under control, and she seems to be doing well. Since we have replaced the abnormal endothelium with healthy endothelium, I presume that this would stop the ICE syndrome from progressing. Do you ever do penetrating keratoplasty for patients with endothelial dysfunction? Very rarely. Sometimes with pseudophagic bullets, I would do a full thickness graft if the iris is very abnormal because, as you know, the full thickness, the endothelial transplantation requires injection of air into the anterior chamber to kind of hold the disc into place. But sometimes I get patients with who have undergone intracapsular cataract surgery a long time back, and they have corneal decompensation with large sector idectomies. So those kind of patients where the iris abnormality is there, and I'm not very sure that I would be able to have a nice air bubble in the anterior chamber, I would refrain from doing an endothelial transplantation because the air, if injected, goes into the vitreous cavity, and sometimes you may not be able to successfully put your disc into place. Rajesh Fogla, thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Rajesh Fogla is Senior Consultant, Eye Surgeon, and Corneal and Laser Refractive Surgeon at Apollo Hospitals in Hyderabad, India. His paper, Initial Results of Small Incision Deep Lamellar Endothelial Keratoplasty, DLEK, appears in the February 2006 issue of the American Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Fogla or any of our previous guests or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website, asseenfromhere.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the new media project of the NYU School of Medicine and is edited by Joe Fry. 
be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.